Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, ahead of the 42nd annual Terry Fox Run on Sunday, we get a behind-the-scenes look at Fox's historic marathon of hope from a man who was right there at his side. Bill Vigors was working with the Canadian Cancer Society when he joined Fox in New Brunswick in 1980. And he shares it all in a new book called Terry and Me, the inside story of the Marathon of Hope. The world's biggest rubber duck. Yes, there is such a thing. It's making a return appearance in Toronto this weekend after drawing massive crowds back in 2017. There's a pretty neat story behind how the six-story bathtub toy came to be, and we'll share it with you. It's a sure sign of the end of summer. MPs are back in Parliament on Monday. It promises to be a busy fall session after a summer that saw a conservative surge at the polls and a big cabinet shuffle by the Liberal government. And that means Mercedes Stevenson and the West Block are also back this Sunday morning. She joins me with a preview of the show and the fall session of Parliament. But first, a major showdown between the big three automakers and unions on both sides of the border heated up today as some 13,000 United Auto Worker members hit the picket lines at three U.S. assembly plants looking for higher wages and better benefits. As the automakers themselves reap these huge profits, we find out what impact that will have on this side of the border. Well, that was the sound of unionized auto workers on the picket lines at three American assembly plants today. More than 13,000 United Auto Worker members are on strike as of midnight at the three big U.S. auto companies after they failed to reach a new contract that expired on Thursday. They began picketing at a GM plant in Missouri, a Ford factory in Michigan, and a Stellantis Jeep plant in Ohio. Striker Rodney Cordette says it's been a long time since he and his colleagues could afford to buy their, the vehicles they build. Some increase in wages would be nice, but um, I'm, I'm also looking after retirees. I mean, they got everything taken away from them. Retires, their health care, it's, it's been really hard on them. Right. The UAW's president said the targeted strikes could go company-wide if no agreements are reached. It is the first time in the UAW's 88-year history that all three companies have been targeted simultaneously. Here is President Sean Fain. When they're profitable, it's all theirs. They want to keep it all. We want a fair agreement. We want fair economic and social justice for our members. That's what this is all about. And auto workers got a nod today from the U.S. president. Joe Biden says he's dispatching two of his top aides to Detroit to help resolve the strike. Biden says auto workers deserve a contract. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including in the last few years, because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of UAW workers. Those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. So here on this side of the border, of course, because there really isn't a border when it comes to the automotive industry, uh, we're so deeply integrated. We may see impacts on the manufacturing side, but also on the labor side. And this is key because Canadian auto workers are in their own contract negotiations with the big three and will be in a strike position as of the end of the day Monday. That's the deadline for some 5,700 unionized workers at Ford of Canada. You know, four members there, along with their counterparts at GM and Stellantis, have given their representatives an overwhelming strike mandate as well. They're hoping that this will set 
uh, the pattern, these negotiations with Ford for their negotiations with GM and Stellantis. To help us dig through all of this is Arthur Wheaton. He's Director of Labor Studies at Cornell University's ILR Buffalo Collab in Buffalo, New York. Arthur, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start in the U.S. because this feels like a big one. I mean, we're hearing things from the president of the UAW, a tone that we probably haven't heard in a long time. And I get the sense that the union really thinks that they have both, you know, they're, they're on the side of right and they actually have some leverage here. And I think about 75 percent of the United States, according to recent polls, agree with them that there's overwhelming support for the unions here in the United States for this particular issue because they're not fighting for the highest paid workers they're fighting for the the newer hires temporaries and part-timers that make half of what the legacy workers before the bankruptcies make so there's a lot of people politicians and the general public very much on the side for the union this time yeah i guess we have to rewind back to the financial crisis for this a little bit because they made big sacrifices back about 15 years 14 15 years ago Absolutely. And they actually called it pressing pause, that they were going to pause the cost of living adjustments and they were going to pause some of these benefits during the the bankruptcy and the restructuring that was imposed on them by the federal government. And now that they're making record profits and getting billions and billions of dollars in federal subsidies for the transition to electric vehicles, the UAW says it's time to give it back. And everything they're fighting for now are exactly the same conversations they're having for Unifor in Canada as well. Yeah, and we'll get to that as well, because I think that's really interesting that we have these parallel negotiations going on. The tone's a little bit different in Canada, uh, but still, I'm sure they're talking. Uh, Tell me a bit about what the sticking points are right now, because it doesn't feel, I know they're negotiating over the weekend a little bit, but it doesn't feel, I, I can't tell if they're close or not. Uh, They're not close. There's still a lot to work out. So the biggest issues, number one, are wages, that they're trying to increase the wages. Many other large unions in the United States recently, either through a strike or just prior to a strike, have been getting wage increases for a four-year deal closer to 30 or 40 percent. So there's several unions that have gotten the big deal. And the most that they've gotten so far for an offer is 20 percent from the automakers which isn't bad, but with such high inflation in the U.S., they're real low. The, one of the bigger sticking points is the tiers. So the newer hires past 2007 make only about half. So a legacy right. worker may make $32 an hour, and the new workers don't even make 16 and that was meant to be temporary, as you pointed out, right? That wasn't meant to be forever and ever. Tell me about this this idea of, of the of this targeted strike because it's an interesting tactic, and it is it is targeted. It could grow bigger, I suspect, but for the time being, it feels like the first shot across the bow. Absolutely, exactly right. It's modeled after the Flint sit down strike, uh, which you didn't know where or when they would occupy a building. This one is they don't know where and when the next facilities will be struck. So they have absolutely a terrible time trying to organize and figure out their logistics. And that's the point. They want to force them back to the table to get a deal. And it's forcing all three companies back to the table to make a deal. And the first one to make a deal wins. Right. I mean, I've heard the big three argue that they have trouble competing against some of their non-unionized rivals. Uh, Toyota, Toyota, I think, 
Tesla, especially on the EV side of things? Is that is that even is that an issue that needs to be looked at? It, it, it's certainly an issue that they are competing against them. A lot of the competition have lower wages, but in the last ten years, the the three companies have made over two hundred and fifty billion dollars in profits. That's not too bad. That's no, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of money. Uh, just the impact. I mean, it feels like if this were to drag on, it could have a very widespread impact, and not just on the Canadian, not just up here, but certainly right across America. I mean, that it's you're dealing with inflation. If production of cars stops and prices start to go up again, I mean, this could have some pretty big repercussions. Even though right now we're only talking about about thirteen thousand workers. Absolutely, the estimates are if all of them went on strike within ten days the U.S. economy would lose about $5 billion. Only a billion of that would be directly from the auto workers and the automakers, but it would be another $4 billion in the community and the suppliers and the other folks that depend on the auto industry. Do you suspect that one of the big three is going to blink here? Because you said, I mean, as you point out, the stakes are very, very high. I mean, the president's been talking about it today. He's already sending in uh, people to try and help out with this. It feels like everyone would like to see a deal done before the end of the weekend. I, I agree. I would love to have a deal done. I don't think it'll be before the end of the weekend, but let's hope that the UAW working with Unifor can get to a deal since Ford is the strike target in Canada. That could cause additional auto plants to go on strike if they can't reach a deal. But I'm not sure they're threatening a strike in Canada at this point. But we're all hoping it'll get a deal, but I think it will take time for all three. I don't see Stellantis making a deal anytime soon. If we see a expanded shutdown or a prolonged strike, it's going to have effect for sure on volume production at Canadian park suppliers. That's Flavio Volpe, uh, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association president here in Canada. We're talking about uh, UAW workers going off the job today, some 13,000 of them at three different plants, owned one each by the big three Detroit automakers. Uh, their contract expired on Thursday, so this is part of a sort of a first salvo by the union. They want some pretty significant wage increases, and they've gotten a lot of support, as Arthur Wheaton, Director of Labor Studies at Cornell University's ILR Buffalo Colab in Buffalo, New York, was telling us. Uh, Arthur, of course, you know, there really aren't any borders when it comes to the automotive industry between uh, Canada and the U.S., at least. This this will have an impact at some point, but maybe not right away. It's going to have an impact almost immediately because an assembly plant, they have what they call a multiplier effect. So that the 13,000 UAW members on strike right now at the three assembly plants will more than likely impact 130,000 jobs so that it really does impact a lot of folks. And even in day one, they've already started laying off people that are related to that particular plant. Yeah, I was reading a really interesting fact that with with the just in time and the just in time manufacturing system and just how often uh you know a, a vehicle will cross back and forth across borders or components of the vehicle will that it's literally the first part to run out can stop the assembly line. And often you don't even know what that is. That could be anything, right? Well, that's what we saw. The entire auto industry got shut down because of a computer chip. So they had issues getting computer chips, and it completely and totally decimated the U.S. manufacturing of cars for a while. So they're finally getting those back online, but it only takes one part to stop the line, and that, that's important. 
we were talking about this before uh, the break about the union negotiations going on in Canada because, of course, Unifor workers are also in the midst of contract negotiations with the big three here at home. Uh, and Monday's their deadline, at least uh, there's a at least according w- with Ford. Uh, so, how do you think this is going to play out? Because it feels like this feels like a big showdown between in uh, between two very powerful unions and three very very powerful and very profitable corporations. It absolutely is a showdown, and you have the President of the United States on the side of the UAW and sending people to help, and you had the President of Unifor, the newly elected union president there, and the newly elected union president at the UAW, both together at the bargaining conventions, that the UAW is working with Canada so that they are not fighting with each other. They're joining forces because the fight against the Detroit Three is not easy. No. What do you see happening here? Because it feels like we're in somewhat uncharted territory. Uh, it's been more than 20 years since the Unifor and the UAW have had their contracts expire at about the same time. And one of the reasons that um, the UAW is not having a total all-out strike at Ford is they don't want to diminish the power of Unifor in their contracts since Ford's the target. So I think there's hope that Unifor will actually help the UAW by getting a deal at Ford, which is much better at dealing with labor and management issues than the other two companies. Right. And the deadline on this side of the border is Monday. So I, I suppose they'll be working towards that, perhaps, with, in, with eyes at least to a settlement, something with Ford. As you mentioned, they can negotiate with, the, with each of the different big three separately and hope that whatever pattern they set with the first one then leads to the other two. And also the pattern they set in Canada can help the other, the other automakers in Canada and also help the UAW. So they're working together, not against each other. And it's going to be a tough battle. I think the toughest one's at Stellantis, but I, I think it makes a difference that they need to try to improve the living and working conditions since COVID and the high inflation to try to bring auto workers back on par. And you mentioned this already. I mean, if we, you know, if we go back to the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, that area, I mean, the auto big three were in big trouble. And here we are back uh, in 2023, and they're not. They're doing, as you pointed out, they've done excessively well of late. I think so far in the first six months of this year, they've made close to $22 billion U.S. in profit in six months. And over the last 10 years, $250 billion. They're doing just fine, but they do have to invest money in the electric transition, but they've made a lot of money and they're getting help from both the U.S. government and the Canadian government to make that transition. They are indeed. What's, what's your take on subsidies for these companies? Because of course, Canada's in the midst of a, we've been having a, a tussle here with Stellantis. Speaking of Stellantis, got a, got a big subsidy to build a, a battery plant in Windsor, Ontario. And uh, then in St. Thomas, Ontario, Volkswagen got a big subsidy. I mean, it feels like the government's been pouring a lot of money to try to move this green transition along. And it, it feels perhaps like they have a slightly different, like they have a bigger stake in this. I mean, they've they've always given a lot of money to the automotive industry, but it feels like they have an even bigger stake in this now, and they might be raising their voices more this time around in this labor dispute than they might have in the past. Absolutely, and one of the things that Ford just received close to, I think, $9 billion in subsidies and and loans to help them build a battery plant, 
And the UAW, instead of celebrating, saying, great, you're building a new battery plant, they were very upset for exactly the reasons you said, because there were no inclusions in those agreements to help with higher labor costs or to help pay the workers. It was all for the companies, the investors. It was not for the workforce. Wow. Well, Arthur, I think it's going to be an interesting weekend. Uh, As you mentioned, this is kind of uncharted territory, and it is a very, very big dispute between some very powerful actors. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Arthur, we... MPs head back to work. On, well, they've been working over the summer, I suppose, but a parliament resumes on Monday. It has been, it's a sure sign at the end of summer, of course. Uh, the fall session of parliament begins Monday morning. Lots to look forward to, of course, because over the summer, we saw a big surge in the polls for the opposition conservatives, a pretty major cabinet shuffle from the Liberal government. The prime minister met with his caucus this week in London, Ontario. Clearly, affordability and especially housing are going to be very hot topics in Parliament uh, this fall. Justin Trudeau announced several affordability measures at the end of his party's retreat. Uh, Ottawa will eliminate the GST on costs associated with building new rental apartments. And his government is giving grocery companies until Thanksgiving. So just a little over, over a month to come up with a plan to stabilize food prices. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action, and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. The middle class and people working hard to join it. You know, that was his big that was his big campaign, his big sort of slogan eight years ago, back in 2015, and he's rolled it back out again. I guess he's realized maybe they didn't do enough, right, for the middle class and people working hard to join it. Here we are in 2023, and there there is that old line coming out again. It gives you a good idea of where this whole political debate has gone over the summer, though. Uh, already, other party leaders are announcing their plans to tackle some of these big issues. Pierre Polyev says he will bring in a proposal on Monday. It's a private member's bill uh, that offers a mathematical formula tying federal funding to home construction across Canada. You increase home building 1% above the target, you get a 1% increase in your federal infrastructure money. You come in at 1% below the target, you get a 1% reduction. So it is a scalable incentive that gets the, the local government gatekeepers out of the way to build, build, build. Jagmeet Singh, as well, the NDP leader, has a private member's bill of his own called the Lowering Prices for Canadians Act. So you can see you can see the theme that's developing already. But, you know, I, I was there for the opening of Parliament many a time, and uh, it's like the first day of school a little bit. And everyone goes in with their best laid plans, and then, of course, everything just takes on a life of its own. So who knows what might happen over the next few months? Um, you know, there's still the... In the uh, the foreign inter uh, the foreign interference um, inquiry that's now set up. There is, a, in fact, someone there to, to to handle it. But that was a big deal as Parliament uh, ended back in June. And there's contentious gun control legislation that was left hanging in the spring, and much more. And if Parliament is back Monday, that means global news is the West Block is back this Sunday morning. Check your local listings for timing. You can catch it online at globalnews.ca. But Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, you're going to get a sneak preview tonight because Global News Ottawa. Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson, joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Mercedes. Thanks. It's so great to be back and to be talking with you, Ben. Yeah, I always remember this time, and it's been a while for me, but I always remember this was sort of like back to school because there was sort of this lull, and then all of a sudden everything starts to get a little jittery right before the Monday when Parliament resumes. 
it's it's kind of like let's not uh, be overly generous and say the night before christmas no one's that excited <laughs> maybe it's a little bit more like the night before you go back to school uh yeah. where it's, a, it's a new year and, yeah. and, and what will you learn and who's going to have what shenanigans and disasters or great successes and it's a really interesting political climate right now because the whole storyline around this government and the opposition is uh, changing and transforming before our eyes in a way which I haven't seen since before the liberals were elected. Uh, this is starting to really remind me of some of the stuff uh, with the Harper government in, in their final years. So it's it's really a remarkable time to be watching the, the changes in political discourse and sort of the shift in how Canadians are feeling. Yeah, I was looking back at sort of your final episodes heading into the summer, and one of them really struck me was that it was all about how both Trudeau and Polyev really have to woo Canadians over the summer. So how do you think they did? I think uh, Justin Trudeau probably gets a D, and uh, Pierre Polyev probably gets uh, an A-, minus because he's come a long way on the Polyev side. Uh, he completely rebranded his image. We all kind of scoffed at first when we were watching in the office, and he took his glasses off and looked super awkward and uncomfortable. And now he looks polished, relaxed, approachable. He's dropped a lot of the more combative tone in his voice. He's softened his image. He has very deliberately bought, brought his wife and children uh, into the spotlight. His wife, of course, is a refugee from Venezuela. He has talked about the fact that his father is gay, that he's adopted. He's the son of a teenage mother. He's managed to soften his image in that way uh, with folks who may have been worried about social conservatism or the hard right despite the fact that he, you know, supported the convoy, which has largely fallen off the, the collective radar. And the Liberals' attacks on him over that and, and the attacks on him over his position on the carbon tax and climate change have not seemed to find the same purchase as they did before, which is also kind of remarkable in a summer where we've had the worst fire season on record. It, it has not blown back on him in any way. In fact, it's Justin Trudeau who's taken the brunt of this. He did not manage to woo Canadians, and, and he certainly tried in a few different ways. Remember, there was the massive cabinet shuffle. Yeah. Um, we see cabinet shuffles all Speaking the time, right? Speaking of things right? that have been forgotten, yeah, the massive cabinet <laughs> Speaking shuffle. Speaking of things that yeah. you know should have been huge and now we're off the radar because it's such a crazy news cycle. Yeah. I mean, veteran cabinet ministers out, very few held on to their portfolios, very few even stayed in cabinet. A lot of names people have never heard of put in, which, you know, I guess works wonders in some ways, because if you have have no record to be held on. You can't be criticized on it. Uh, but they're not known names. And there was a lot of anger in the Liberal caucus from some MPs over how people were chosen. They said it had to do with things like fundraising and loyalty to the party over capability or or ability to win votes in certain ridings. I mean, well, at the end of the day, uh, this is partisan politics. So they're going to pick people who they think are, you know, as in the Kool-Aid as possible and can win. Uh, but that did not successfully change the channel for him, even though it took the heat off, you know, the immediate issues around Marco Mendicino as Minister of Public Safety. Then we had the cabinet retreat. That was a chance to sort of roll out this big idea for how they were going to shape things up. And everyone in Ottawa lately has been talking about how Justin Trudeau, when he came to power, was really seen as this very positive person. So, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant kind of stuff. We're going to change things. We're different. He was a disruptor. You can't really be a disruptor when you've been the prime minister for eight years. And so he's not able to fulfill sort of the stereotype that he created at this point just alone, let alone the record, uh, the fact that he's been in power this long. So the only chance he sort of has to regain that is that he's got to find some radical way to redefine the liberals and inspire people and make them want to vote. 
They didn't achieve that at cabinet. It was very much kind of like a wet blanket coming out of that. Now he's at the caucus retreat coming out of what was an India trip that went very badly and concluded with his plane getting stuck there. Indeed, yeah, um, the, the metaphors, the metaphors <laughs> accumulate. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's been a, a very good summer for Pierre Polyev and a very bad summer for Justin Trudeau. What I always loved about the West Block is that you do take politics off the hill. And that's always something we used to talk about when I was at the Ottawa Bureau. Take the politics off the hill. You must be curious to know, and I'm sure you heard it over the summer, because I think that's part of what we're seeing here, is that when families get together and friends get together and people talk, they start to share opinions about things. And I think maybe that's part of what we're seeing in these shifting polls. You must be curious to know what Canadians are thinking about these days, because if you listen to the political parties, it's all about affordability, and I get that. But there are always other things out there, too, that kind of fly under the radar until all of a sudden Parliament's back, people are talking about things and people are are out asking Canadians about other issues that are cropping up. You know, I think um, healthcare is a big one that didn't get talked about this summer that's going to get talked about in the fall. And I know no one wants to hear the word COVID, but it's going to come back on the radar. And it's not actually about COVID in, in the way that I mean this. I mean, the fractures that it revealed in our healthcare system, which are very real. And as people start getting, whether it's COVID or flus or colds going into the winter, slipping and falling on ice, um, the overload in the healthcare system, very real. And even though that is a provincial responsibility, the feds get nailed on it. I think you're going to see energy as another big issue and energy independence. The military, I think, is going to be a really big issue. I mean, you had Anita Anand uh, as defense minister saying she was personally committed to rearming the Canadian Armed Forces. And then she got pulled out of that role. A lot of folks at National Defense believe it's because she backed the plan to give the military more money. Bill Blair gets put in, who's a police officer. Police officers and military officers, perhaps contrary to popular belief, generally don't get along at that level. We see it even with military on military. There could be a lot of conflict in that role. And now they're talking about, there was a a release that came out internally at DND the other day from the chief of the defense staff and the deputy minister saying they're going to make cuts. So I think that could be a big issue because, you know, we're out there talking a big game as a country. Uh, Justin Trudeau is in India. He is in Singapore. He's in all these places talking about our Indo-Pacific strategy. But at the same time, we don't have the people. We don't have the equipment. And now we're talking about cutting back the funding even further. You know, who's really not going to like that is the United States of America, because they would like us to meet 2% of GDP for NATO. The prime minister has privately apparently said that, That will never happen. He does not deny saying that, but he won't confirm it either. Um, And it certainly looks like if they're looking for for cuts in government, and they are, they have to find ways to save money. Um, That coming out of the military could have some really interesting international consequences for Canada. Yeah, and some domestic ones too, given how much the military has been leaned on to fight some of these huge climate or these huge disasters we've seen over the summer. Mercedes, lots of issues were circulating around when Parliament ended back in the in the spring. One of the big ones, of course, was the foreign interference inquiry. We seem to have had some sort of resolution to that with Marie Jose Hug uh, appointed as from the Quebec Court of Appeal appoint, appointed to look into this. Do you think there are any things that were really uh, top of mind back in the spring that are going to kind of fade this fall and things and the reverse things that weren't really on the radar in the spring? spring that are going to become a big deal. You already mentioned the military. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talked about how housing and, and affordability is an obvious issue, but I, I do think that is really going to 
continue to be an issue. Um, the Bank of Canada held interest rates in their most recent rate announcement, but they also warned they could go up again. I think if they go up again, um, the government is going to be under enormous pressure at that point. Uh, people are struggling, as you know, you don't need to tell your listeners, they're all feeling that squeeze, uh, whether it is the mortgage, the rent, groceries, gas, the, the price of doing everything is just so extraordinarily high and salaries are, are not keeping pace and, and people are struggling. And whenever there is something that affects people very directly in politics and personally, that's a very powerful and dangerous issue for politicians. So I think depending on what happens with the economy, uh, I think that this is part of what Justin Trudeau is trying to figure out, if he can wait it out and the economy is going to turn around and the interest rates are going to come down and people are going to forget and be less angry, or if it gets worse and they are between a rock and a hard place on what they're going to do. So I think that that's going to be a really big issue. Uh, you could see the Liberals try to deal with gun control again. They did that in the spring. It was unsuccessful. They introduced that legislation that was so badly written that was supposed to only target handguns, but then ended up just adding inexplicably a bunch of long guns in. That didn't make it through, but they're they're going to have to deal with that. Um, there's a lot of questions about what they're going to have to do to deal with natural disasters. Uh, we yeah. are seeing more and more of them. And their current status quo, as you mentioned, has just been essentially deploy the military, deploy the military. The military doesn't have enough people, nor is that really their primary role. We don't have a National Guard like the United States does, where their their pretty much exclusive role is to do things at home and, and not so much deploy. Um, the National Guard does go overseas, but they, they exist a lot for natural disasters and that sort of thing. When you have an undermanned, underwomaned, underpersonnelled Canadian Armed Forces, yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's a real pressure there. They, they, they simply cannot respond to balloons that are flying potentially from China, forest fires, floods, covid a war in Ukraine, um, and all the other situations that, that we're trying to deal with. I think China is, is going to come up in a big way again. Not only are we going to see uh, Canadian planes, military planes deploying back to Japan on Operation Neon uh, to monitor the waters for um, munitions being sent and, and prohibited items being sent to North Korea, particularly interesting now with that visit to Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's traditionally where the Chinese have tried to intercept our planes and gotten pretty aggressive. So I think between that and the interference file, you now have a judge in place who is able to actually run this. But I think there's going to be a lot more questions on that file and, and that it is uh, not going to go away. And with the liberal history, there is a tendency for self-inflicted wounds. Same with the Tories. So I'm sure from both parties, we're likely to see some of that going into the fall as well. Well, you just so the way you describe it, I mean, given what's happening in Canada and what's happening around the world, this is a minefield for this government. I mean, it would be a minefield for any government, but it's a minefield for this government coming up. One false step, and as we saw with the foreign interference inquiry uh, when David Johnston was appointed, and the whole thing just kind of blows up on them. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult position, and part of this is if you if you take a look at Canadian political history. If Justin Trudeau decides to stay on and run again, he will do what no other Canadian prime minister has done. Uh, he will have tried to win more elections than any other Canadian prime minister. And typically Canadians around kind of the eight to 10 year mark get sick of governments. They don't tend to vote governments in so much as they vote governments out. So it's it's not so much that they might think that in the case of Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau was great, or if Mr. Polyev uh, were to be so fortunate as to be elected in the next election that Mr. Polyev is so great as they just get sick of the last guys. And it's never a single misstep. People have a lot of tolerance, and it's, it's when it sort of builds and becomes a trend. If you can't find a way as a politician to disrupt that trend, 
you have a problem. And they may be able to do that. If the economy turns around, that will help them immensely. If they cut government spending in some areas, people might give them some credit. But on the other hand, they've got to wonder, do they start giving people pocket spending money again like they did during the pandemic? Some economists said that that didn't affect the economy. Others said it had a negative effect on the economy, depending on who you talk to. Either way, people liked getting the money, but they run the risk now of being criticized. They once again are giving out money that they cannot afford to give out. Um, so I think they've got some some tough decisions to make in terms of branding. And I think there's going to be continued questions about whether Justin Trudeau can continue as the leader. There's been no sign that he is going to step away. But those questions are starting to mount inside the Liberal Party. And while they will try to tell you publicly in front of a camera, there's no questions about that. Privately, people are wondering if Justin Trudeau is the guy to take on Pierre Polyev in the next election, uh, in the case of, of several MPs who I've spoken with. Yeah. And, and now you get the chance because this is the best part about Parliament Resuming is now you get a chance to bump into all of them. So you'll hear what the scuttlebutt is. <laughs> exactly. Mercedes Stevenson, uh, have a great season on the West Block. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is a story we talked about a little earlier in the week, and it's one that I think is really interesting. So today, the man charged with three counts of aggravated assault in relation to a triple stabbing in Vancouver's Chinatown last weekend at a celebration made his first appearance in court. 64-year-old Blair Donnelly was arrested and charged after three people were stabbed while attending the Light Up Chinatown Festival last weekend. The victims were a senior couple in their 60s and a woman in their 20s. Fortunately, they, they had serious but non-life-threatening injuries, according to police. Now, BC's premier, who doesn't really come out and say things with these tones often, has been very vocal about what happened here. Uh, David Eby has uh, tasked former police chief Bob Rich to investigate how the alleged assailant was released from a psychiatric facility on a day pass when he says he posed such a clear danger to the public. We will ensure that Mr. Rich has access to all of the documents and uh, individuals that he needs access to in order to be able to share details with British Columbians about how it could possibly be that this man was released into our communities without warning, unaccompanied, able to attend a major event and attack innocent people. Now, here's the background on this. Donnelly, of course, has a history of violence. He stabbed his teenage daughter to death in 2006, but was found not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder. He was eventually sent to British Columbia's forensic psychiatric hospital. And the details of the case, it's quite clear that this isn't, wasn't really a, a decision that was in much dispute at the time. There was then another incident in 2009 while he was on an unescorted day pass from, an, from the institution in which he took cocaine and stabbed someone that he knew. In April of this year, a review board report characterized Donnelly as a significant threat and recommended that he receive intense supervision at the hospital, but also that he could be allowed out for daytime visits, even sleep outside the facility, if the hospital's director of care deemed him not a threat to himself or to others. All the hospital will say at this point, they're not talking obviously, is that they always put public safety first. Uh, Anita Zaghetti is president of the Law and Mental Disorder Dis Association, rather, and she says attacks such as this one are very rare. It is extremely rare to see someone reoffending violently while on an authorized pass from the hospital. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've had maybe 10,000 of these hearings. I have not encountered this tragic situation that you're describing to me now that I don't know anything else about. 
But a victim's rights advocate says she wasn't surprised at all. Rebecca Mayerhofer's brother was killed in 2010 by a man who was later found to be not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder, and he was freed only to offend again. She says the system is broken and needs to change. Frustrated, 100% frustrated, because these are things that can be prevented. Like, these are things that should not be happening. So is that even possible? Is one of these incidents one too many? And if so, how do you better predict who is a real danger and who is not? Joining me now is Patrick Bailey. He's a forensic psychologist and a lawyer in Calgary. Patrick, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good evening, Ben. Tell me about just this case, because, I mean, again, there's always these, you know, working in the media, as you well know, there are these cases that crop up that people pay a lot of attention to. They think they symbolize something about a far broader problem. What was your initial reaction to hearing about this one? Well, reflecting on a couple of the comments that you played in the introduction, I certainly understand the, the Premier's frustration when public safety does not appear to have been the paramount concern in a case like this. Um, I know Anita. I've worked with Anita. Um, I also understand her comment that these kinds of cases are exceptionally rare. So when this kind of news comes out, my reaction is we need to take a closer look. We need somebody like Chief Rich who can go through the documentation and say what slipped through the cracks because clearly a mistake was made in this case. We need to figure out why so that it doesn't happen again. Tell, take me a bit. Take me behind the scenes a little bit, because I think this is where people have, you know, they scratch their heads a bit about how this decision could be made. But again, we have the hindsight of, you know, it's hindsight is twenty twenty, and we don't know what exactly his, um, you know, his treatment situation was at the time. But under what circumstances would someone with that kind of a past, uh, even though he's sixty four now, with that kind of a past, be released unsupervised into the community? Well, let me speak broadly about the NCR process, rather, and I'll, I'll come back to talking about this particular case. But anybody who knows me knows that I'm an advocate for the NCR system. Um, mm-hmm. the, the difference is that when somebody is found not criminally responsible, it really becomes a healthcare matter, not a criminal matter. And so the decisions that are made by a review board, uh, typically outside of the court process, have public safety as the paramount concern, but are looking towards eventually having these people being able to reintegrate back into the community. And in the vast majority of cases, the review boards have very accurate information, they make good decisions, and public safety is not placed in jeopardy by that move towards reintegration. Again, the focus is on health care, not criminal sanctions or criminal penalties. And so when a review board happens, as it did this past April for Mr. Donnelly, they take all of the information available to them and they make a determination of whether or not this person continues to pose a significant threat. If the person does not pose a significant threat, and that's why that language is so important, the board has to give the person an absolute discharge. In other words, they leave the hospital, no conditions, back into the community, no supervision, you're done. If the board makes a determination that there is a significant threat, there's still another decision that has to be made about whether or not this person needs to be kept in hospital or whether or not they can have what's called a conditional discharge and be allowed back into the community with restrictions and some supervision. In Mr. Donnelly's case, what the review board said was that there was evidence that he wasn't being adequately supervised that there had been poor communication that happened in the past between some of the treatment providers and the supervising psychiatrists. 
the board also referred to the fact that on three previous incidents of violence, and all three of them involving stabbings, there had been uh, abrupt deterioration with no apparent warning. And on the day that he killed his daughter back in 2006, there had been no deterioration that occurred in the days leading up to that particular event. So what the board said was that this is an individual who requires a high level of supervision because he is likely to deteriorate rapidly. The board also said that when he is stable and well, he is good at doing a self-assessment of ongoing stability, but the board specifically said that when he is unwell, he fails in that ability to do a self-assessment. So in other words, it's kind of like saying, well, when I haven't had anything to drink, I don't think I've got a problem with drinking, but as soon as I start drinking, I don't think I have a problem because I don't recognize that that's what's going on. And so you, you have an individual who isn't able to do a good self-assessment once that rapid deterioration starts. And so there needs to be this high level of supervision. And clearly, at the Chinatown Festival, there was not that high level of supervision. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I think that's, that's where people, and you, you heard the anger from the victim's rights advocate in there as well. And I think it's important to point out that these cases are rare because you don't want to throw out, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say the past few days, the whole system is broken. The whole system is broken. And it's an easy thing to say. And I don't think the whole system is broken. But and when you look not. at these sorts of, you look at these examples, of course, they need explanation, right? They, I, and, and I guess, what is the benefit then in a situation, say, of Mr. Donnelly's or, or someone like Mr. Donnelly? What is the benefit then to the community that they be allowed out on their own, that they be allowed out unsupervised into the community when it, can, when it is always or can be a bit of a roll of the dice? There is, there's an element of the roll of the dice, but it is a controlled set of dice in that the individual is supposed to be stable, is supposed to be responding to treatment, has shown progress in their um, participation in activities within the hospital, has moved gradually so that we go through being able to walk around the grounds of the hospital with supervision, being able to walk around the grounds of the hospital without supervision, being able to go into day passes into the community with supervision, being allowed short periods of time so there doesn't have to be somebody on their shoulder during that entire period of time they're in the community. But to then go to the point of 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours on a day pass without any degree of supervision, there has to have been a whole history of behavior, positive reintegration prior to that for the person to essentially earn that right. The, the role of the dice piece is the notion of we want to see how this person is coping but you don't take an individual who's been struggling and put them into a high-risk set setting and see how they cope. You take somebody who's been successful and make these incremental steps to see how they're going to be able to reintegrate successfully into the community. Right, ultimately with the goal of, of getting them out of there, right? I mean, that, that's the ultimate goal is to, is to treat them successfully, I understand. Yes. Uh, yeah, and Patrick so there are, two things, yep. there are two things going on. I and mean, One is, is allowing the person liberty. The other is assessing how well they're functioning with that. And in this case, there just seems to have been a breakdown in that. Patrick, when you look at this at this story, what questions do you have? Because I think for people outside, um, it's, it's difficult for people outside to understand where the mistake might have been made, other than, wow, they can't possibly know what they're doing, so everything is bad about this system. So let me start with the, the comment about the system. Um, significant research has been done over the years looking at things like 
the accuracy of review board decisions, um, recidivism or reoffense when these individuals are able to return to the community. And typically the research has shown that the recidivism rates are lower in this population than they are for folks who are coming out of uh, jails and penitentiaries, for folks who are coming out of psychiatric hospitals generally. And so the review boards are, uh, are doing a very good job of determining what needs to happen. And please keep in mind that in this case, the review board said he needs to be kept in a hospital and there needs to be a high level of supervision. As you pointed out, there was then discretion given to the hospital that when he is doing well, he should be allowed certain privileges. And so it doesn't take much to be able to figure out that the deterioration, uh, the mistake was made not at the review board level, which is the broad system within the criminal code, but at the hospital level in terms of the adequacy of the monitoring, or in this case, the lack of monitoring when he's out in the community. And so, again, Chief Rich will look at all of this and, and make a determination and advise the, the minister and the premier. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that the mistake was made at the hospital level, not at the review board level. This, of course, is playing into a much broader conversation that's going on in a lot of cities these days about bail and so on. I think it gets lumped in, maybe unfairly, as you've been pointing out. But it's being lumped into a broader conversation, I think. And that's part of what's going on here. I, I, and that's fair that... Um, the bail conversation, I think, is a very important one to be having um, in two respects. One, the safety of the community um, when people are uh, going through a rapid process of being arrested and released and returned to the community, um, but also for those individuals who may have mental health challenges, uh, what are we doing to look after these folks and, and so the rapid bail system that doesn't even allow them to get access to some treatment resources uh, is failing those people as well. Do you feel? Do you get the sense? I mean, I, I've, I, you know, I, I believe in in rehabilitation. I think that's why our our system works better than some others. But do you get the sense out there? And I know you pay close, close attention to this stuff. Do you get the sense that people's patience is is wearing thin? Uh, there's a lot of things going on right now. There's obviously an opioid crisis going on that's had a devastating effect on a, on a sizable chunk of people, uh, often with, with mental health issues to begin with, that there's just sort of people are, are losing patience with, with the results of this. And that's kind of a dangerous place to be in. I, I agree with you. Right? People are losing patience. Um, and it comes in many cases from their direct observation that when they are riding transit or going through certain neighborhoods in just about every major city in Canada, you know that there's going to be open air drug use you know that there's going to be uh, potential for violence. Um, and that wasn't the way that it was five years ago, 10 years ago. And so people see the deterioration and look to the justice system and to police to be the ones to start making that change. And of course, the justice system is largely governed by the criminal code, which is a federal document. So then you need to convince the federal government to say, these are the changes that we need to be making. Um, interestingly, the, the government did make some changes to the NCR regime just about a decade ago um, to try to make sure that public safety was the paramount concern, um, in addition to a number of Supreme Court decisions that said that's the way review boards should be functioning. But it, it takes so much time for 
the government to catch up, to do the consultation, to enact legislation, to bring it into effect, to train police services and courts on how to use it, that people are becoming more and more frustrated with uh, gaps and, and uh, caverns in the mental health system that's allowing people to fall through and gaps and caverns in the justice system that leave people frustrated and feeling as though they're not getting justice. Well, Patrick Bailey, thank you for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thank you for the chance. Now, that's a sound that anyone old enough to remember the summer of 1980 will probably never forget, uh, the sound of Terry Fox and, and his Marathon of Hope, those images of that lone figure on those lonely-looking highways, often with just a car behind him, maybe nothing at all, and his distinctive running style, of course, uh, on his prosthetic leg, pushing his way across the country to raise funds for cancer research. And from the get-go... And you'll remember this if you're old enough to remember seeing or you've seen him since talking about why he did it and how he did it. Uh, He would always remind people that while he was at the center of attention and while he struck a very lonely figure out there, he was never alone. To me, being famous myself is not is not the idea that Ryan and it wasn't the idea from the very beginning. To me, the only important part about the publicity is cancer can be beaten and the marathon of hope. And I'm, I'm just one member of the Marathon of Hope. I'm no different from anybody else. And that, of course, is especially true and a reminder of that this weekend because this will be the 42nd annual Terry Fox run on Sunday. And that is the continuing legacy of that incredible Marathon of Hope that's raised millions upon millions of dollars for cancer research over the last four decades. Uh, of course, 43 years ago this month, Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope came to an end near Thunder Bay, Ontario. But again, his legacy is still so rich. I mean, it's perhaps one of the most famous events in Canadian history. Uh, The charity alone has raised $850 million for cancer research since 1980. That's just an incredible amount of money. But what if that marathon of hope had never captured the public's attention the way that it did? And how did that happen? Well, my next guest is a big part of that story. Bill Vigors was doing PR and fundraising work uh, for the Canadian Cancer Society back in the spring of 1980 when he was told uh, to go to New Brunswick to have a look at a young guy a uh, cancer survivor with a prosthetic leg who had made this plan to run across the country. Uh, he had already begun. He had already been through Newfoundland PEI and was into New Brunswick, or Nova Scotia was into New Brunswick at this point. And uh, that's when they met up in Edmonston, uh, which was a long way. At this point, of course, there were some issues. It wasn't getting the kind of attention that Terry had hoped for. Uh, but Bill Vickers has written a book called Terry and Me, The Inside Story of the Marathon of Hope, is filled with stories like that. It is filled with an inside look at the Marathon of Hope, including the song we played for you off the top that I had never actually heard of by Nancy Ryan's Take One Singers called Run, Terry, Run. It's one of the many gems in Bill's book, and he joins me now ahead of the Terry Fox run on Sunday. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben, and, and what a wonderful introduction. The music, uh, the sound of Terry running, and um, your introduction, you really set up this interview wonderfully, and, and uh, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be on, on your program this evening. Well, Bill, it was a great book, and I, you know, I, thought, I think a lot of us think we know a lot about the Marathon of Hope, 
because those of us who are alive to watch it, we forget what we what was going on then and what we might have known later. And, you know, like Run Terry, Run the Song, I don't think I'd ever heard it. I went looking for it today. But wow, you know, I, I, listening to the sound, for me, it's always that sound of him, of him running. I mean, his voice too, but for me, it's always just that sound of him running. That must bring back some memories for you too, because you were there. Well, the, the the running, yes, very much so. But um, I, I I must start with a funny story, um, and it involves that song. It right. was played everywhere that summer, and uh, we heard it. Terry liked it, but we heard it over and over again. And uh, the day that he ran down University Ave in Toronto, there was a vehicle following us, um, and. Um, they were blasting that song. And as I ran past Terry with a big smile on his face, he looked at me and said, do you know if I hear that song one more time, I'm going to shoot somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I could see why it might get a little cloying after a while. After yeah, a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book, Bill. And I guess because we're going into the Terry Fox, uh, Terry Fox run this weekend and it's sort of the continuation of it. But you were, I mean, you were, you were going through some tough times yourself. So this was sort of, you know, there was a lot on the line for you. Then you don't know much of it. I mean, reading your book, you can sort of see if you were at the Canadian Cancer Society at the time and you got this letter, you know, you sort of know about Terry's dreams that it might have been easy to say, well, wait a second, like, who is this guy? And so you're kind of sent to New Brunswick for a couple of reasons in 1980 um, to go see him, right? To go see if he's the real deal. Yeah, they, they it's uh, uh, quickly after to explain this, the structure of the Cancer Society at the time. It was a uh, bottom down and up organization, volunteers. So you had the national office, you had a provincial office, you had districts, and then you had communities. And one could not order the other one to do something. So even though the national director of fundraising, a gentleman by the name of Ron Calhoun from London, who coined the actual title for Terry, Marathon of Hope, mm -hmm. he got the, the national office involved. Then it came down to the Ontario, or to the provincial levels, and, and in Ontario, um, the two largest districts, which were Hamilton and Toronto, said that we don't have enough volunteers, so we're not going to participate, which means if they didn't participate, Ontario wasn't involved, and it, it came down as a crisis. Terry was in Quebec City, and I got a call from the, um, the gentleman who was making the documentary. Most of the footage that you see uh, mm -hmm. of Terry running was done by a gentleman named John Simpson. John calls me on a Sunday night and he says, the boys have run out of money. They have not had a shower in a week. They've been sleeping in the van. They all had a cold. And he said, if you don't do something right away, this thing's not even going to get to Ontario. So there was an emergency meeting called in Ontario and volunteers came from all across the province. There was about 40 of them. And a couple of, of of the people involved argued very much in favor of it, and it came down to a vote. Hamilton uh, representatives changed their, their their vote, and and my boss looked at me and said, "Go." And so I ran up the stairs, and 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 the next morning I'm uh, halfway between Montreal, uh, towards Drummondville, and um, I'm you know three days have passed since I've got that call. And I begin the greatest summer of my life, the greatest adventure of my life. And, uh, and, and then yeah. we were on the road. Because one of the things that really struck me about the book is you meet them first in Edmonston, and right away you're taken in New Brunswick. Right away you're, you're taken with Terry. You think, yes, 
this is yeah. you know this is everything and more um yeah. you, you refer to him as a disruptor which i thought was a really interesting way of putting it because if you think about it it was it was disruptive to what had been a very you know the canadian cancer society had its way of doing things and terry just came in with this idea and was not going to be convinced otherwise that this was not a really great idea and, and this was going to work Yes, because the Cancer Society had their way of raising money. One of the biggest things they did was sell daffodils. And that was initially, that was my first responsibility when I came on board. And here comes this kid um, who's going to take up a, a lot of time. Um, they're going to have to assign somebody, uh, which turns out to be me, luckily, uh, to try and make it work. And and it, and it wasn't going to be a one-shot effort. You know, Was who was this guy? That was basically why I went to Edmonston. Who is he? Is he for real? And I realized that first day, that first morning, by lunchtime, I'm going, you know, if this guy gets to a populated area, because I saw how he, rep, how he moved people standing at the end of the concession road and what he was like just as a human being talking to them and, and finding out about him. And then when I saw him speak in a, in a small town and there's about 500 people that first day that I'm with him in a town and there's not a sound in the, in the downtown area as he spoke. And there was no two sides to Terry. He spoke from the heart. Uh, he was there for one reason. He was motivated by one reason. And that was his experience in the children's ward and in Vancouver cancer treatment center. And I knew that this had the potential of exploding. And um, I left him thinking, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make this thing work. Yeah, because then you mentioned, because I was in Montreal at the time, I was nine, but I was I was in Montreal at the time, and th he had this sort of long trip across Quebec that wasn't particularly, the, the Quebec Cancer Society, the Quebec branch, the Canadian Cancer Society, wasn't particularly interested. No one spoke French, right? So that they kind of ignored it. So he had this long and lonely journey across Quebec, but that also gave you time to plan. It gave you time to plan for his arrival in Ottawa for Canada Day, and then in Toronto, and then the rest, because I think that's what most people remember about the Marathon of Hope. We don't remember the Quebec leg. We remember everything that happened after that was so monumental. When I left him at the border of New Brunswick and Quebec, I warned him that nothing was going to happen, um, that just get through it and, and there'll be, it'll, 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 it's going to go big, Terry. It's going to go big, Terry. I was bluffing. I hadn't, I had no plan at that point. And as I flew home, I'm on the plane, I remember, and I'm writing down notes and you know, maybe we can do this and maybe we can do that. And then the next morning I'm driving to work, coming down the Don Valley, down the Rosedale Valley Road. And I hear a guy by the name of Jeremy Brown, who worked at a radio station, in the CKFM. And he had seen her read Leslie Scrivener's uh, article in the Toronto Star. Actually, his wife read it and called him and said, you got to read this. And he came on the air that morning and he was usually funny. And that morning he came on and he talked about Terry and he said, I'm going to get behind him. I want my listeners to get behind him. I drove there immediately, had a coffee with him. He said, come back at 4 o'clock. He had some young businessmen and all the management from the radio station. I had two Polaroid pictures. I gave my sales pitch, told him what this guy was like. And I could, I, even as silly as it sounds, Terry and I sat in that van in New Brunswick. And we took the map from uh, New Brunswick to Ontario 
And we went 26 miles, 26 miles, 26 miles. So I knew that, for instance, okay, you can make uh, Ottawa for July the 1st, and you can make uh, Toronto for July the 11th. And I left the meeting. Those guys said, "You we'll take care of Toronto. You take care of the rest of Ontario. And what I ended up doing was driving back and forth between Toronto and Ottawa, going in all the little towns. I talked to the uh, Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, the Women's Institute, and I talked to them about this kid who was coming in with one leg. And they were, you know, open to the idea. And they said, well, if it takes it this far, we'll do something. And I said, I guarantee you, he's coming. Uh, Bill, some of the things that really jump out of the book, too, is just like the pressure on Terry, too, because when no one was paying attention, it was frustrating. When everyone was paying attention, it was really demanding. And he was trying to run this marathon every single day. This was just I think your book really paints a picture of Terry that makes him very human. Sometimes we think of him as superhuman. And he was he was just a man. Right. He was just a man. Warts and all. Yeah, there were some individuals, and it wasn't the Cancer Society, I want to stress that. Mm-hmm. And there were some individuals, and I never mentioned anybody by name on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was that they, they couldn't get it through their head that this kid was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, running at 5, by, t- by 8 o'clock he'd run 12 miles, 4 miles an hour, and uh, he'd have breakfast uh, or, and then have a nap. He'd get up, he'd run, lunch, run until he'd fill in his 26 miles, then he'd go and speak, have a supper, hit the sack, same day after day after day. On occasion, one particular one individual booked two events in one time, and, and, mm-hmm. and in one right after the other. And the first time, it, they weren't far apart. And but even after that, he kind of reprimanded me. You know, I'm supposed to be on top of it, and, and I wasn't. And the second time it happened. The, the events were 30 miles apart, and it caused a serious, serious problem between Terry and I. Um, I was actually threatened to be fired by the Cancer Society if he didn't go to the second one, and I had to go and tell him. And uh, and he, he he actually threw his clubhouse sandwich and fries at me. Uh, I never, ever, ever lost his temper. That's the only time he ever and, and I have to tell the whole story so that you understand him. And all I could do was pick up the sandwich and go outside. And I went and got another one and I told Doug, his friend, take it in. He came out after his rest, slammed the door, got in the van, and actually laid rubber. He never drove. He got, that day he, he did drive. But that day he got in the van. And we didn't speak for two days. As a matter of fact, I went back to my my, my apartment in, in Toronto and and um, about a day and a half later, actually it was Sunday morning, I get a call from Doug, his friend, and said, you got to come back. He's miserable. He's not talking to anybody. Um, it, it's you, you have to come back now. I drove up. By that time, they're in Barrie. I sat outside his room uh, on the floor. There was nobody in the hallway. He came out. I got up and I apologized deeply. I, I promised it would never happen again. And uh, just prior to that, a couple of people made, had him run. Out. We, we found out that people had have him run uh, like five miles out of his way to go down to City Hall when there was actually a shorter route. And we didn't know that. And, and he says in the hallway, Bill, I don't feel like it's my run anymore. I feel like I've lost control. And right. I said, I promise it'll. Ne- oh, and then he said, Bill, I just want to go home. And I said, Terry, it'll never happen again. 
I give you my word. And we hug, and then we start, both started crying. And, oh. um, and, 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 <clears throat> and then I said, okay, they can't see us crying. You go out that door, and you, I go out that door. And as desperately as I needed that job, four months before that, I was down and out. And, and, and that's a long story. It's all in the book. Mm-hmm. I consciously, in my head and my heart, said, I'm no longer working for the Cancer Society. I'm working for Carrie. And after that, actually two days later, something happened where they wanted us to run a, a different route in Sudbury. And uh, I refused. And the guy says, well, I'm calling, I'm calling Toronto, and I'm going to get you fired. And my kids traveled with us. They were eight and nine years old. We're wow. up in Sudbury with the... With, yes. Yeah. 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 And we're, we're at dinner with the organizing committee, and the guy at the end of the table, who's a, a cancer site employee, said, we're going to write down City Hall. And I went, no, we're not. We're taking the bypass. And he said, and it got into an argument. And I, I, it, it got to the point where, as childish as it sounds, it kind of, finally I went, he's not going to do it. Na, 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> so much attention. I mean, you know, I, I, I highly recommend people read the book because there's a million moments like that in it, and we can't get to all of them, obviously. But it's amazing when you think back now about Terry and that moment that summer. What's your What's the one thing that you've taken away from it? Because there's so much, but you, I, I know because the the cover of the book kind of says it all. That's how you remember Terry smiling. Yeah, I remember. People think of Terry um, with that pain look on his face, and you have to realize that. That prosthetic device, every step is jamming up inside his groin. If you can imagine the pain every, every day, no, and people yeah. say, doesn't that hurt? And he'd say, yeah, it, it hurts a lot. But um, the kids in the cancer ward back in Vancouver, they can't stop. And anybody who has cancer in the treatment, they're fighting it. I can stop anytime I want, which sounds almost too good to be true that this guy was, but that was him for real. Um, he was just this incredible, um, kind, gentle, uh, funny. That's another thing that people will find in the book that he had an incredible sense of humor. Yeah. And, uh, and in all of there was many days where there was lots of laughter and there was many days where there was lots of tears. And I think pe- what I tried to do was put people inside the van to find out you what did. it was like every day on the road. You did, Bill. It was, it's a remarkable book. I, we've, we were, thank you so much for sharing some of those stories. There are so many others. We'll try and do this again because there are so many other great stories I would have loved to have gotten to. But thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much. And, and people, go out Sunday and run. Walk, roller skate, anything. Thanks. No, I've always wanted to play a Sesame Street song on this show, and that's one of the best ones. I mean, there are a lot of good one, good ones out there. It's not easy being green. Letter B, uh, C is for Cookie, but Rubber Ducky. That's a that's a pretty famous one. Now, there's a reason why we played it tonight. What is your favorite Sesame Street song? I don't know if you're if you're from my generation. If you're Gen X, then you'll have a favorite Sesame Street song because I kind of we kind of grew up glued to Sesame Street and then the Muppets, obviously. Uh, but let me know, one 9898 Maybe we'll play them all one night. But for now, we have two for you because they both have the same theme, which is the rubber duck. And back by popular demand, the world's largest rubber duck will be in Toronto this weekend for the Toronto Waterfront Festival on Saturday, 
and Sunday. It uh, now this time it's not they're not going to float it. Back in 2017, they got these massive crowds, and it was out on the water. But a that's expensive. It actually ended up being a bit of it ruffled a few feathers. <laughs> and I'm not that's the that's the last pun by the way. It ruffled a few feathers back then because it was expensive. Something like I don't know 250 grand. I, it's, I'm, I forget the exact dollar total, but. It, you know, people were upset about how much money it cost to bring this duck in. Although it was a huge success, right? It was a massive success. Success. It's about six stories tall. It's absolutely gargantuan and looks exactly like a bathtub rubber duck, like the one that Ernie has in that uh, in that famous skit on Sesame Street. Um, so they're bringing it back to Toronto for the weekend, and it's going to be on land. Um, and it's a pretty impressive sight. It's incredibly popular as well. Everywhere it goes, they get these really really big crowds. Again. There's a 30,000-pound steel pontoon. Uh, I think that's when you put it on the water. If not, though, it sits on land. And we wanted to know more about it because I thought that's, a, we thought that's an interesting story. Where did this thing come from? Who came up with the idea? And it turns out that it happened over, as, many good, as some good ideas do, happened over a couple of beers. And now a lot of times those ideas never go anywhere, right? Those ideas are talked about, forgotten, big dreams, big plans, gone. Not this one. This one is, in fact, the world's largest rubber duck. And its creator, or chief wrangler, as he's sometimes called, is Craig Samborski. And he joins me now with more on this. Craig, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Always fun to talk about subjects like this. For, the, for someone who's never seen it, how big is this? world's largest rubber duck well it's big uh like i've owned this thing for like i don't know almost 10 years and every time i see it inflated i'm like wow that's a really big duck um it's a little over six stories high so 61 feet high 64 feet wide and 74 feet long that's big <laughs> that's a big duck <laughs> yeah, you need a big bathtub for that one you this, sure do the story behind this one is is interesting as well because there is a backstory and it involves tall ships Maybe a few too many beers and and a good idea. You've done your research. Yeah, I was producing um, Tall Ships Los Angeles. I was contracted by the city of L.A. and I was out having beers with uh, one of my colleagues that worked with the city of L.A. And he just said to me, he's like, hey, man, you know, you're a really nice event producer from Minnesota, dude. But you are in L.A. now. and You got to go big or go home. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean by that. I've got like a dozen really cool tall ships coming what more do you want and he's like you got to build the world's largest rubber duck and you know by that point in time we were you know a pitcher and a half into it and uh i said wow that's a great idea and then i woke up the next morning kind of scratching my head going oh my god what did i get myself into and like nine weeks later this duck was delivered to the port of los angeles no instruction manual and that was that it all started from there the rest is history. Uh, nine weeks from, wow, I'm not sure that's such a great idea to hear it is. How did you get the thing built? So there's, uh, I had to search for a couple of companies, one to build the steel pontoon that it floats on when it's in the water. And then I had to find somebody to build this duck. And surprisingly, there are a number of companies around America that build inflatables. Um, and I fortunately hooked up with David Sherba at Sherba Industries in Cleveland and he was very accustomed to doing really wild, crazy inflatables. In fact, I think he's got a dozen inflatables out on Drake's tour right now. Um, so David was the guy. And, um, you know, we worked on a design for it. And, um, yeah. And then you know, nine weeks later, he said, "Go, your package is waiting for you down at the port of L.A. And sure wow. enough, there was. 
a Great Lakes yeah. connection going on there too, which is a Great Lakes connection with us as well up here on the other side of uh, some of those places, Superior and so on. Um, well, yeah, same for me because I actually yeah. live on Lake Superior. I live in Duluth, Minnesota. There you go. So we're all we're all connected in some way. Yeah, we are. Uh, t- yeah. Tell me, tell me about this pontoon because I imagine that's that's the really. I mean, just being able to to get it into the water and then to weigh it down. There's yeah. there's a lot going on here. Yeah, it's a 30,000-pound steel pontoon that a company in, um, coincidentally, Ontario, California, built for me. Um, we don't use the pontoon a lot anymore. I'm sure at some point you're going to you're gonna ask me, well, it's on land in Toronto, right? And yes, it is on land. But we did have that steel pontoon built for us, and um, that thing is just a behemoth. Um, especially to put it together, you need a, you know at least a 125-ton crane to put it in the water you need a big tugboat to pull it around and putting it together and taking it apart is uh, a major effort it's like a day to put it together and a little over half a day to take that thing apart yeah you mentioned this already i will ask you about it i was going to ask you about it a bit later but i'll ask you about it now because you you draw a really nice cool analogy about this when it gets (laughs) when it's on the water it looks great right yeah it it does but but (laughs) but it's a huge thing on the water. You compare it to, I don't know, speaking of tall ships, I mean, it, it, it's susceptible to the weather. It's, it, it, yeah, there's a number of things about the water that are really a challenge with the duck. Um, we'll put it on the water and people will show up to the event and they'll take a picture of the water and then they'll come up to where we sell merchandise and they'll talk to me and they'll say, hey man, that's really cool on the water. Now put it up on land so my family and I can get close and take a picture with it. And I, I, I was hearing that all the time and the duck, really the attraction to it, it's something that people just desperately want to have a selfie with. Right. Right. So when it's in the water, you can't get very close to it. And especially for kids. So that was one element of, you know, kind of a little bit, a little shift in our thinking. The other part of it too, was, you know, it's really expensive putting it in the water. You know, cranes are very expensive tugboats are really expensive and then you got to have a lot of labor to put the whole thing together so you know when you factor in all that you've got that big expense there sitting there and a lot of places around the world contact me you know they're like hey we really want the duck here we want the duck here and then when i give them the price that expense of it being on the water really became a problem and so we did some redesigning you know we're able to do it on land a lot easier now we're able to make it a lot more affordable so we can go to a lot of different places. I mean, I, I love the, I, like this summer, I spent uh, some time in a couple of smaller towns with it. I mean, it was just a huge, huge hit. We were a couple hours south of Washington, D.C., and that was, that the crowd we had at that little small town rivaled the crowd we had in Los Angeles the last time I was there. So that, that was a big piece of it for me, was being able to deliver this thing for cheaper than than what it was costing and being able to just go to a lot of different places. So that that's kind of how it's evolved. Right. And of course, ducks are land animals, too. I mean, they do both. So so why not? Right. They do. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You did mention that there, there has been times, unfortunately, where the weather is bad enough that you actually, speaking of deflating, uh, that you've actually had to yeah. deflate the thing. And that that's a big problem, obviously. It sort of ruins the whole purpose. It uh, Yeah, it does. You know, in fact, the last time we came through um, Ontario, we were in Amherstburg and really, really windy. And um, the duck got shoved up against the dock. There was a street light there and the street light ripped a huge hole in the duck. And there was no way I could get it repaired in time for that day. So we missed a whole day of being inflated because of it. And when this is on the water, 
if you think about, you know, the size of this duck, like, you know, compared to a tall ship, I mean, it's got the sail area, probably a dozen tall ships. So the wind really gets a hold of it. And the pontoon is is just like a boat. So it starts bouncing around, bounces up and up and down the dock. There was a time in Erie, Pennsylvania, it was just bouncing around so much on the dock. We had to deflate it, you know, and that was for a whole day. It is not quite like that on land. When we're on land, um, the way we ballast it to the ground is a lot stronger. So she can sustain a lot more wind. And so I can't, in, in fact, kind of with our new design, I can't even really think of a time that we've had to deflate it because of weather, knock on wood. It's a return trip to Toronto, Craig. I gather that one of the first or most memorable events you've had with with the Duck was actually in Toronto as well uh, back in 2017. Yeah, Toronto, you know, we have a very soft spot in our heart for Toronto. Toronto is the biggest audience we've ever had for the Duck. Um, I think uh, Lee, who runs the festival, told me after the fact that we had close to a million people in four days. I know that, like, for me to try and get an Uber from my hotel six blocks away to where the duck was, was impossible. They just, there was none available. I ended up having to take a, I found somebody that had a little boat and I had them bring me over to the duck by the boat because the mass of humanity on the sidewalks and the streets to get to the duck was, it, it was, it was crazy. I never seen anything like it. And I think it was not long after we opened the gates that, several businesses on the waterfront ended up closing because they ran out of product. I know Starbucks closed at like noon that day because they, they didn't just run out of coffee. They ran out of every product they had to sell. It, it is remarkable. You think about the beginnings of this as sort of a, a kind of a throw it out there idea. I mean, we all, we've all done that, you know, the million dollar idea that you forget about the next morning. And here you yeah. are, you know, many years later, 10, more than a decade later. And this thing, I mean, the duck continues to attract these huge audiences. And I gather you get, Lots of emails as well, just about how people react to it, and that's that must be a big, a big payoff too. It is. It, there's there's a ton of inspiration there. I mean, when I was getting this thing built, I thought, okay, well, it's a marketing gimmick, maybe. And and I started getting emails from people that I, when I was building this, and I, so I thought, well, there's kind of this cult. I mean, I get, I bet I get like 50, 60 emails a day from people that are you know, interested in the duck. And I get emails from people that talk about how inspiring the duck was. I uh, kind of one of my favorite emails is, was from a young lady who was having kind of a dark period in her life. And she said, you know, I saw your duck online and the duck has brought so much joy to my life when I'm feeling down, I look at it. And, um, and then she followed up and she said, you know, Hey, um, you know, I don't know if you remember me, you know, your duck kind of got me through some rough times. I'm now graduated from college. I'm married. I have a couple of kids and our whole family loves your duck. Who wouldn't yeah. love getting an email like that, right? And then, you know, we get people that travel. Like um, the last time we were in Canada, our last event of the season was in Brockville, Ontario, which mm -hmm. is quite a ways northeast of Toronto. There was a family of five that flew to Toronto from Austin, Texas, got a rental car, drove to Brockville and spent the entire weekend with us. In fact, they helped us. Uh, fold her up and put her away when we were done with the festival. And we get that in so many places we go. Last year at the Detroit Auto Show, there was um, a woman that showed up one morning and she said, hey, I flew up here from Houston, Texas to get wow. my picture with you, Craig, and the duck. I said, wow, that's really cool. We got done with the picture and she says, okay, I got to go back to the airport now. So she like flew up in the morning, got her picture and flew back to Texas that afternoon. So yeah, it's she's very popular and and I love that and I love how happy it makes people. And now for the for the for the obvious questions, did you were you a rubber duck fan growing up? 
You know, not really. I, I didn't you know, think you, so. You talked, about my, you talked about my tall ships thing, and I do tall ship festivals, but I've I've been in the festival production business, like, you know, the technical part of it, the promoting uh, for a long time. Before that, I was in the touring concert industry. So my background really has just been in, in mostly spent in marketing. And when I, when this idea was planted in my head by my colleague out in LA, it was just like, I mean, like a, a light bulb went off and I'm like, it's going to be one of two things. It's going to be really cool or it's going to be really dumb. And, you know, fortunately it turned out to be a great thing for, you know, myself and my family and my staff. It's, it's been a great source of work for us and just a great source of joy. I, on a number of events, my, both my daughters will come out on the road with us and help. And we, we just have a great time with it. Yeah. Do you ever want to hear that Ernie song again? <laughs> I, you know, it's strange. I've, I think I've maybe heard every duck joke there is, but I, I still love hearing him and I love the rubber duck song and I love the, I love the Bert and Ernie uh, rubber ducky in the bathtub song. Yeah. Craig, good luck in Toronto this weekend. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there to see it once again. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, anytime. It was a pleasure talking to you. 